Thanks for joining us today for the Fellowship Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit fbcpanamacity.com. Now, here's today's message. Isaiah 40, verse 12. Please read along with me. Uh, Follow along in your text. I'll read aloud. The Bible says this. It says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names by the greatness of his might that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, feigneth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint, And be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. I want to preach on this topic this morning. Behold our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this text of Scripture, I pray that we would be captivated over again with the awe and wonder of who you are. Lord, give me the words to say guide and direct me in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Isaiah chapter number 40 is a turning point for the book of Isaiah. Uh, it, it contains some prophecy moving forward, the book of Isaiah does, but much of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are filled with condemnations and current events about Judah during Isaiah's tenure as prophet. In fact, the first 39 chapters can be very uh, heavy and depressing as you read them. And the end of chapter number 39 explains that Judah is going to be carried away into Babylonian captivity. But this, this what we're reading here in, in Isaiah 40, 
It, it speaks of further events, even beyond the captivity of Babylon. And as this chapter begins, Isaiah's tone changes. Previously, he's full of condemnation. Now there's hope in anticipation. And that's what the remainder of this book is. It's filled with prophecies that affect not only the Jews, but the entire world as the Messiah is prophesied about, end times themes are brought to light. And it is the hope that is contained in the remaining 27 chapters of this book. They can be captured in the very first verse of chapter 40. It says, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Comfort. Why? Well, because according to verse 2, their warfare is accomplished, their iniquity has been covered, they've received the just judgment for their sins, and now there's a message of hope coming. We see the hope of the coming Messiah and his forerunners in verse 3 to 5. I encourage you to read it at another time. In verse 6 to 8, there's a grand reminder that man is frail and will pass away, but God's word will come to pass and will not fade away. And then verses 9 to 11 are a call to behold your God, Judah. Look at verse nine. It says, O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountains. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. This, this strong declaration of behold the power of your God. And then in verse 11, he says, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and he shall gently lead those that are with young. He, he point, paints this picture of this mighty warrior that is our God, but who is also a gentle shepherd who will lead us. Nothing but hope is on the horizon. And as we come to the text we just read, we transition into probably the most amazing description of God that has ever been penned. And as we continue, I just wanna remind us of something. This particular passage of scripture, and I like to say this when I'm in the Old Testament, was not written to us, okay? It, according to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 15, we can make application on the scripture because it was written for us. But this passage was written to the Jews to bring comfort and hope, and the application of this passage is for us, okay? So the Jews reading this, they would have been on the edge of Babylonian captivity. Or maybe they, there was a Jew who picked this up and read this or had it read to them while they were in captivity. They were going through hardship. They would have had questions. They would have needed hope. Some may, maybe even doubted God. But the greatest remedy for desperate situations is a renewed perspective on the greatness and the glory of God. And that's exactly what Isaiah offers here. The single most important thing we need is to be in awe of God once again. Because awe of God will keep us from sin. It'll help us walk closer to him and stir us to invite others to know him as well. Awe of God helps us see God in his glory and in his, over, in his holiness, and that will overwhelm us. But too often we lose the wonder of who God truly is. And the awe of God is lost on us. We're guilty of allowing ourselves to think of God as not much more than distant, uncaring, and honestly, just a nice idea who helps us out when we need him. So my question for each of us today is this, when is the last time that you actually allowed the greatness and wonder of God to leave you in awe of who he is. So this is our goal today, to draw our minds, to draw our focus back to our amazing God. And as we look at Isaiah's description of God, we'll see three awe-inducing aspects of God. Now, to be clear, this list is not exhaustive. We do not have time 
uh, now or forever into eternity to truly explain how awesome our God is. This is a great place to begin, though. So number one, he is the majestic God. Beginning in verse number 12, Isaiah asks several questions to help us think about how amazing and majestic God is. And he uses illustrations that we can all relate to and understand. And he, he, he paints these intricate word pictures that give us a small glimpse of God. Now remember that this is not an, an exact description of God because first, God is a spirit, okay? God does not have hands or uh, carries around buckets or picks up islands like we're going to read. God is a spirit. And two, it's not possible to completely define or describe God with human terms because God is completely indescribable. He is far above anything we can think or ascribe to him. So the, the best words we have in the English vocabulary to describe God barely begin to describe who he is. Okay, so here's three particular aspects of God's majesty that Isaiah points out. Number one, he points us to God's creation. Verse 12, he asks the question, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? All right, everyone put your left hand in the air. Hold it out in front of you like this. Wow, you're doing so good. All of you, if we were in Kids for Truth, you'd all get candy. Cup your hand together like this, real nice. You see that hollow spot in your hand? What Isaiah is saying is God put a few drops of water in there, poured it out over the surface of the earth, and that is how he measured the waters of the earth. Okay, he asks another question. And meted out heaven with the span. Hold that left hand back up. Uh, Close all your fingers except for your thumb and your pinky finger. And look at the distance between your thumb and the tip of your pinky finger. Some of you didn't participate this time. No candy for you. That's considered a biblical span. And he's saying God took the universe and he measures it. Boom, right there. He asks another question and comprehended the dust of the earth in the measure. He's he's making a comparison to God taking uh, all of the dust of the earth in a basket of measurement, like the ephah, which is about three gallons. So all of the dust in the entire universe, God puts in a three-gallon basket, and that's how he measured it all out. He continues, he says, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. The scales and balance would have been used to measure out different goods and ensure that the right amount was given. He's saying that God took the mountains and the hills and he placed them in a scale to measure out that each of them was the right amount to put on earth. All of the amazing creation around us that we so often take for granted is incredibly small to God. He says in Isaiah 48, mine hand hath also hath laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. The psalmist said of old, hast thou laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Solomon said in Proverbs, who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? If thou canst sell, all that we see has been created by our amazing, awesome, majestic God. So he begins by pointing out God's great creation. Then he continues to talk about God's wisdom. He asks more questions. He asks this, he says, who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him? Who showed up at the beginning and showed the Spirit of God what to do. Who was God's counselor when it came to creation? Who taught God? He continues, he says, with whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? Who was it that God sought out counsel from? 
Who gave God instruction? Who taught God how to judge the earth? Where did God go to school to get his knowledge and understanding? And these are not questions that are meant to be answered because there is no answer. Nobody taught God. Job said, shall any teach God knowledge seeing he judgeth those that are high? God didn't need a counselor. God didn't seek out someone to teach him because he is understanding and wisdom. He judges the earth justly without the aid of counsel or jury. He doesn't need one because he's God. He is majestic in wisdom. And then he goes on to talk about God's transcendence. He, he says this, he says, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles is a very little thing. He's saying to Israel, the nations that you're dealing with, the nations that you will, will deal with in Babylonian captivity to God, they are like a single drop of water in a bucket. To God, the nations that you are going to deal with, they're like the dust that you wipe off a balance before weighing something. He says that God, he takes up the isles as a very little thing. The amazing, beautiful islands of the world that we all hope one day to vacation upon, God reaches down and just picks them up. It's no big deal to God. He's so much greater and majestic than any of those things. He continues by saying that all of the trees and beasts of Lebanon are not enough for a burnt offering to God. Somebody once said, and I'm, I apologize, I don't have the source, but someone once said, whatever we honor God with, it falls infinitely short of the merit of his perfection. For he is exalted far above all blessing and praise, all burnt offerings and sacrifices. He says that all the nations before God are as nothing. Uh, in fact, he says in verse 17, they're counted to him less than nothing and vanity. There is nothing and no one that is greater than God. And everything that we think is amazing or daunting to God is nothing and even less than nothing. You know, a dad and his three year old son, they were having a deep conversation, okay? I work with kids all the time. I have deep conversations with three-year-olds. And the, this dad and his son, they were talking about who is the biggest in the family. They noticed that this little boy, his big brother was bigger than he was and that his big sister was even bigger than the, little, the big brother and that mom was even bigger than the big sister and that dad was bigger than mom. And in his frustration, the son looked at his dad and he said, dad, you're not bigger than God. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that. Now, remember, this was written prophetically to Judah. They were still 100 years from Babylonian captivity that was going to come. Even before this happened, though, God is sending them hope, sending them comfort. Through Isaiah, God was telling his people, remember, even when things are hard and nations are oppressing you, that I am God and I am the God that is greater and I am the God that is bigger than all of that. He was stirring all in their hearts so that even in the most difficult of times, they would know that God is bigger. And the same is true for us. If God is so amazing that he measures the waters of the world in the little hollow of his hand, what is it in your life that God cannot handle? If God is so majestic that he measures the universe with the span, what is so big in your life that God cannot overcome? If God is so great that the measures of the dust of the world, he puts in a three-gallon basket, what burden is too big for God to carry? 
If God weighs the mountains and hills in a scale, what can't he make right in your life? If he can grab the islands of the world like you grab a gallon of milk out of the refrigerator, what can't God do for you? If all the nations are less than nothing to God, what is it that God doesn't have the power to do? I just encourage you, friend, behold your God. He is the majestic God. But number two, he is the matchless God. Now he, he, he begins by explaining that there's nothing we can compare God to, nothing on the earth. Verse 18 says, to whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? And, and he goes on, he, he says, if God is so majestic and big, how are you gonna make something that can capture all that God is? And this question is posed other times in scripture. He says in Isaiah 46, to whom will ye liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? Remember the former things of old for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. The psalmist said, for who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord. Isaiah says the, the workman, the guy who's good with his hands, you know, like the Seth bros of the world. Uh, uh, they, he takes gold and he melts it and he shapes it into a God and he decorates it with a chain and people go up to it and they bow down and worship it. He says that the people who can't afford gold, they go and find a tree that won't rot and they take it to the same person and ask him to shape it into an idol so that they can bow down and worship it. And the psalmist, he talks about the same thing. Psalm 115, he says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. They're both saying the same thing. These people take created things to try and make an image that resembles the creator, and it doesn't work. He's saying, how can you try to make something your God when God is so much greater than that? He goes on to say that God is greater than his creation. He asks in verse number 20, so on, he says, have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? What Isaiah? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. He, he's like, don't you guys know? Haven't you heard? Haven't you been told from the beginning? that it is God that sits on the circle of the earth. In fact, he says there in verse 22 that God looks at the inhabitants of the earth as grasshoppers. The great and expansive heavens that we see in the sky, look in verse number 22, it says, that stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. All that we see, God just stretched it out. The powerful people of the world, God brings to nothing. And vanity. Without God, the princes and judges of the earth have no power. They have no continuity. So he asks again, verse number 25, to whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Who can you compare to God? He tells them to look up at the night sky and see all that God created. And he says that God brings them out by number. He calls every single host of the heavens by name. And he does it by the strength of his own power and none of them fail. We look up at the night sky and we're blown away. But God is just seeing star named Frank that he called out that night. 
Who is it that you can compare God to? Anybody? Anything? Now remember, this is prophetically written to Judah and they may not have been flocking to idols at this time, but God knew that when they got into Babylon, there would be idols and there was the potential that they would be drawn away to worship idols. So he fills their hearts with all of him. So they know that no idol can compare to God. They'll know that no leader of the earth is better than God. None of them ever. They know that the creation that they see is only a very small representation of the matchlessness of God. Nothing can come close to him. And we do the same thing today because it is our tendency as human beings to allow created things to become idols. We can relate to the children of Israel in that we are often guilty of taking God's good gifts of grace and worshiping them. I can't remember who said it, but our hearts are idol factories. We set up idols in our hearts, ascribe to them stolen glory that is only due to God. Why? Because we forget about how amazing our God truly is. Friend, the, 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 the promotion that you want, the finances that you desire, the automobile that you, that you, that you want, the, the house that you, that you want, the relationship that you want, the, the, the status that you want, it will fade away and perish. God will not. We lose awe of God. And nothing on this earth can take the place of God. You can't name anything on this earth that you can bow down to and worship and put your whole heart towards that is better than God. Because God stands alone. There is no one like our God. He is higher. He is greater than anything we can worship. The creation that often takes our breath away is still only a finger pointing us back to the matchless God that created it. There is no one like our God. God is matchless. And finally, he is the mighty God. Verse 27, he says, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? He challenges their doubts. He's, he asks, why do you say that your way is hidden from God and your judgment is passed over or overlooked by God? Now, based upon the context in the coming uh, uh, Babylonian captivity, it, he's asking them, why do you act like God doesn't see what's happening to you. Why are you assuming that the things that are happening to you happen without God's knowledge? They were prone to believe that because of their situation, God had forgotten about them. But look what verse 28 says. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, feigneth not? Neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. God doesn't get tired. He doesn't get weary. His understanding is far above what you could imagine. So he's telling them, don't think that God doesn't know. He didn't walk out on you. He may be silent, but he's not absent. He knows what's happening to you. So don't question if he's there or not, because he is. Then he encouraged them to walk with God's strength, he counters their thinking in verse 29. He says, he giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
They assumed that God was faint and weary because he was not responding to them in their, their position. But Isaiah says that it is God that gives power to the faint and increases the strength who have no might. He says the youth will get tired and fall. They'll get weary, but not God. Then we come across that very famous verse that says they that wait upon the Lord. Now this, this word wait, it isn't what you think of. When we think of waiting, we think of the DMV. We think of the grocery store. We think of the light at the end of Michigan Avenue and 23rd Street every single day for four and a half hours. Heaven help us. Now we need to have an invitation so we can confess the sin of frustration. That's not what we're talking about. This word is an active participle. It, it could be read as this, but they that are waiting. In the Hebrew, it indicates a continual action. It's not just wait one time and you're cured. I mean, good grief. If we've ever learned that waiting one time doesn't cure you, just go sit at that light every single day. Uh, it's a continual action of waiting. He's saying, keep waiting on God. And this isn't a sit around and wait either. It's an active wait. Because if you're sitting around waiting for something to happen, you don't need strength. You don't need help. He's saying that as you actively wait upon the Lord, he will renew your strength. And this word renew, it's this idea of an exchange. It's the idea that as you wait on the Lord, he takes your weakness and gives you his strength. As you wait upon the Lord, you'll mount up on eagle's wings and run and not be weary and walk and not faint. It's the idea that while you're waiting, God is changing you. While you're waiting on God, he's giving you everything and more that you need to live for him. So it's as if God is looking at Judah saying, Judah, when you're in the middle of the waiting, don't worry because I don't get tired. I don't get weary. Keep waiting, keep resting in me, and I will take your weakness and give you my strength. Friend, only God can do that. Only God is strong enough to do that. And he is saying the same thing to you today. Just like he said to the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, when Paul said, my grace, that God said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul said, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. Why? For when I am weak, then am I strong. So don't worry. God sees what's happening to you. And, and if the last two years have taught us anything, it's that God works in ways we don't understand. And that sometimes waiting is real painful. And we don't understand, but God's not blind to it. He knows what's going on. Keep waiting and he will see you through. And here's what amazes me about all of this. This is the same God that's been described as bigger than anyone can imagine. This is the same God that has been described as matchless beyond imagination. This is the same God that has been described as stronger and mightier than all others. But in verse 11, he's described as a gentle shepherd leading his people. You know what that means? He wants to bring you in close. He wants to be right there next to you. He wants to lead you like a shepherd. So what in the world 
are we looking at that is keeping us preoccupied from this amazing God? What in the world has got us distracted from the awe of who God is? What have we willingly given the glory that is only due to God? And I hope that you'll let your heart be captured by the awe of God again. That you will see God as amazing and mighty and powerful and matchless. That you'll realize even at this time of the year, as we're busy, 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 and and doing all the things that even this time of the year points to how amazing our God truly is. Take time to bow down before him, the amazing, magnificent creator of the world, and thank him for being your God. Friend, I invite you, behold your God. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Fellowship Baptist Church. Come visit us at 2501 Michigan Avenue, Panama City, Florida. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit fbcpanamacity.com. Have a great week.